Well, good morning. Hey, I'm glad that you're here today. I, I feel like I'm preaching behind the walls of Jericho uh, today. Uh, hopefully they don't come tumbling down in the middle of the message, but we'll be talking about these at the end of the message. Uh, what a wonderful sight that is. Uh, two weeks ago, we began a series called Reset. Uh, the idea behind the series is that we need to rethink how we think about church. And since some of you have been gone the last Sunday or two, I thought it'd be a, a good opportunity for us just to uh, bring everybody up to speed on what we've talked about so far. In the very first week or the first message, we, we talked about the fact that at the first church, when you look in the book of Acts at the first church, church wasn't about a building because there wasn't one. And church wasn't about uh, church people because there weren't any. For the first Christians, church was not a place that you attended. It was not an event that you sat through, but rather it was a movement that you were a part of. And we said in that first message that the movement was really fueled by the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the apostles were eyewitnesses to the fact that Jesus both died, was buried, and was resurrected by God. And when they became motivated by this, move, by, by this fact, this movement began as they shared this good news, and the movement grew really, really quickly. In fact, on opening day, basically, for the first church, 3,000 people responded to the good news and were baptized. And within a couple of weeks after that, uh, the attendance had gone to over 5,000 uh, in the New Testament church. And we're part of that movement because we have the same message, we have the same mission as the first church. And that was the first week that we talked about. And in week two, we said that when the first church really realized the enormity of the mission and the message that they'd been given, then it drove them to join together constantly in prayer. In fact, the Bible says that the sheer magnitude of the task drove them to pray for about 10 days. That after Jesus ascended back to heaven, facing the greatest challenge of their lives, recognizing that they're no longer mere followers of Jesus, now they were to be representatives of Jesus, facing that challenge and, and that realization, they, it drove them to their knees in prayer. And what I said last week was this, before God ever did miracles at Pentecost, before 3,000 people were saved, before the church grew to 5,000 and more, there was a prayer meeting. And we should not miss that fact when we read the book of Acts. That before all of those things happened, there was a prayer meeting. And by the way, we had prayer meeting here last night. I told you last Sunday and invited you to come on Saturday nights at 8 o'clock. And we're just, during the rest of this series, we're meeting on Saturday nights and just praying in the sanctuary together. Very simple prayer meeting time. And last night we had 13 people come. And I was so excited about that and so appreciative of those who came. Now I know that next Saturday night, there's going to be a ball game, I hear. We're not going to cancel prayer meeting. Here's what we are going to do. I'm going to move it from 8 o'clock until 6 o'clock. Because I think the ball game is at 7, I believe, something like that. So we'll have prayer meeting next Saturday night here in the sanctuary, 6 o'clock. You'll be done by around 6.30, uh, but that'll be next week. So the first church, my point was simply this. The first church was a praying church. When they faced big challenges, they prayed big prayers. 
That's really what I want to talk to you about today. I want to continue that theme. That when they faced big challenges, they prayed big prayers. Would you take God's Word and go with me now to the book of Acts chapter 4. The book of Acts chapter 4. While you're turning to Acts chapter 4, I want to set the story up for you by telling you what happened in Acts chapter 3. So let me just kind of talk about Acts chapter 3 before we start reading chapter 4. In Acts chapter 3, one day Peter and John are going to the temple at the time of prayer, which was 3 in the afternoon. And on their way into the temple area, they saw a beggar that everybody recognized because he was there every day. A beggar at the temple gate. And, and the Bible tells us in verse 2 of chapter 3 that this beggar was a man who was crippled from birth. So his entire life, he had been, had been sent or been spent sitting or lying down. He had never been able to stand in his life, had never been able to walk. He was crippled from birth. We, the beggar is not named, but I'm going to give him a name. We're going to call him Bill the Beggar. So Bill the Beggar was there every day as people were going into the temple area. He was at the temple gate and everybody knew Bill, or at least they knew who he was. Everybody would have recognized Bill the Beggar. And so in chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, Bill the Beggar has asked Peter and John for some money. He asked everybody as they were going into the temple for money, for a handout. And, and here's Peter's response in chapter 3, verse 6. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. I wonder what that must have sounded like to him when he first heard those words. In the name of Jesus Christ, walk. Bill the beggar sat there for a moment, perhaps stunned by what he was hearing. Then verse 7, taking him by the right hand, he, Peter, helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. So, so Bill the beggar is miraculously healed. And what do you do once you're miraculously healed? Well, he follows Peter and John into the temple area. And it causes quite a, a commotion. Look at verse 8. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. First time in his life he had ever walked. Then he went with them into the temple courts. And I love this part. Walking and jumping and praising God. I think he probably got a little Pentecostal right there. On his way into the temple. He's walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God... They recognized him. That's Bill the beggar. We see him all the time, but look, he's walking and he's jumping and he's praising God. They recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, Peter decides, because this is causing such a stir and such a crowd that is gathering, Peter decides, hey, this would be a good time to preach another sermon. This would be a good time to tell them about Jesus. i got this crowd. I'm going to tell them about Jesus. So that's what Peter does. He starts telling people there, this time not, on the, not in the streets of Jerusalem, but watch this, now he's in the temple area telling people the good news about Jesus. Now, that's chapter 3. So the rest of chapter 3 is Peter's sermon. And now we come to chapter 4. Our text today, chapter 4, beginning of verse 1. <clears throat> 
priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. So in the middle of the sermon, the priests and the Sadducees and and the temple guards came up to them in the middle of the sermon. Verse 2, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Don't miss what you just read. For the first time in recorded history of the New Testament church, a leader is put into jail. We're going to really dig into this next week. We're going to be looking next week, Lord willing, at the persecuted church. So we'll, we'll really jump into that with both feet next week. But I just want to call to your attention that for the first time, Peter and John, leaders in the New Testament church, are arrested, placed into jail, and do you know what their crime is? Their crime is that they're telling people about Jesus. That's the only thing they're arrested for. They didn't do anything wrong. They're just telling people the simple good news about Jesus, and they're arrested. See, here's what's happening. Everybody look up here. Here's what's happening. The religious leaders are losing market share. Religious leaders are jealous that people are leaving their temple and going to listen to Peter and John. The the religious leaders are losing control. They don't have the influence that they once had. The crowds, thousands of them are going to Peter and to John. Thousands of them are going to be followers of Jesus. And religious leaders are very jealous of this. And so they're trying to shut it down. But look what happens in verse 4. After Peter and John were arrested, look what happened, verse 4. But many who heard the message believed and the number of of men, just men, grew to about 5,000. I want to tell you something. Man may try to stop God's work, but he can never stop what God's doing. Never stop God's work. So, we pick up the story now in verse 5. The next day, the rulers, elders, and leaders or teachers of the law, met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of what, church? By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. It seems like Peter's always doing this in his sermon. He's telling people, you crucified him. But God raised him from the dead. You crucified him. But God raised him from the dead. He's always emphasizing that. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man, this man stands before you healed. I love that. This man stands, verse 10, he stands before you healed. Now just the day before, this guy was not a stander. Just the day before, he could not have stood there. But now he's standing before them, healed. Verse 12. Peter gets pretty bold here. He says, Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. 
And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, that is, that they were not trained in rabbinical teaching, they were not trained in rabbinical law, that they were ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Verse 14. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. I mean, it's hard to deny a miracle when he's standing in front of you, right? It's hard to say, no, that didn't happen when he's standing there in front of you. So we pick up the story, verse 15. So they ordered them. Notice this word. They ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they ask. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle. We cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Did you hear that, church? We must warn these men not to speak to anyone any longer in this name. You see, there will always be somebody who thinks you need to shut your mouth when it comes to Jesus. There will always be somebody who thinks you need to keep your religion to yourself. From the very first days of the early church, the very first Christians, they understood, they experienced it. That there's always somebody that's trying to get you to shut your mouth when it comes to sharing with people about Jesus. You see, that's Satan's attempt not just to silence you, that's Satan's attempt to silence the gospel. And from the very first church, the very first disciples, they've had that same pressure that some of you feel. The pressure to keep your mouth shut. The pressure to keep the gospel to yourself. The pressure not to say anything about Jesus where you work or where you go to school. It's nothing new. Look at the text again. Verse 18, Then they called them in again and commanded them, commanded them not to speak or to teach at all. In the name of Jesus. Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, don't miss that word, after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Here's what's happening. Everybody look up here. Here's what's happening. The religious leaders, Peter and John, the apostles, they're facing a major decision. The major decision that they're struggling with is this. We've been jailed. We've been threatened. We've been commanded not to speak anymore about Jesus. Now what are we going to do? The thing that was at risk was not just the freedom of these church leaders. The thing that was at risk was the advancement of the gospel. And so let's see what happens. Verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. 
when they heard this, when the rest of the church heard about the threats and the jail and all of that, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Let's stop there for a moment. If you mark your Bible, I would underline, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Ladies and gentlemen, this becomes the pattern for the first church. That when they face big challenges, they turn to God in prayer. When they face big challenges, they pray big prayers. This becomes the pattern that you see in the church. That, that throughout the book of Acts, when the church is challenged, when the church is threatened, when the church is under the pressure of sharing the gospel, they, they pray. They're a praying church. Now I'm going to show you their prayer in just a moment. But just imagine that you're in that group. You go to your church family and you share with the church family the threats. You share about being jailed. You, you share about being commanded not to say any more. And somebody says, we need to pray. And everybody says, that's right, let's pray. Now my question for you is this, what are you going to pray for? Peter and John just got out of jail. They're wondering who's going to be next. What would you pray for in that situation? I think I know. I think I know what you and I would pray for in that situation because we're Americans. I think we Americans in that situation would likely pray for protection. God, protect us. God, don't let us. God, bless us. God, cover us. God, keep us. God, put a hedge of protection around us. Isn't that what we usually would pray for? Somebody said, listen, if you don't shut up about Jesus, I'm putting you in jail. If you don't shut up about Jesus, I'm going to beat you with a whip. If you don't shut up about Jesus, it'll be the last thing you talk about. And if we were threatened like that by, by religious leaders or government leaders, more than likely we Americans would run towards God protect us. God save us. You see, for the most part, listen to me church, listen to me, for the most part, the prayers that we pray day in and day out are prayers about us. We pray for ourselves, we pray for our families, we pray for our needs, we might pray for two or three sick people, maybe you pray for your pastor. And I'm not saying it's wrong to do those things. Please hear that. I'm not saying it's wrong for us to pray about us. I'm just saying that the first church, the first Christians, may not recognize a lot of our prayers. They may really scratch their heads if they could really hear some of the things we pray about. I mean, can I put it to you this way? If God answered all of your prayers that you prayed last year, if God miraculously answered every prayer that you prayed last year, for the most part, who is the person that would be better off? And the answer probably is you. Or the people around you. Bless us, help us, guide us, support us, protect us. It's about our safety, our protection, our needs. I mean, we just do it because we're Americans. We pray about us a lot. And again, I want to say it one final time. I'm not suggesting you need to stop praying that way. 
But I am suggesting you may need to start praying a bigger prayer. Let's see how the first church prayed. Go to chapter 4, verse 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer, and here's how they prayed. This is what they said. Sovereign Lord, that is God, you're in charge of everything. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will have decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their what, church? Let's see if you're tracking with me. Consider their what? Consider their threats. Lord, I want you to be aware of, I want you to consider their threats. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Okay, time out. Boldness? Seriously? Isn't boldness what created this problem that they're having? Wasn't it boldness that landed them in jail because they were standing in the temple courts preaching? Wasn't it pretty bold to stand in front of the Sanhedrin and say, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead? Wasn't it pretty bold to stand in the streets of Jerusalem and preach the first sermon at Pentecost? I mean, when was the last time you did that? When was the last time you went out into the streets preaching Jesus? From our perspective, I think they got this boldness thing covered. From our perspective, I would think... They're pretty bold. I mean, for crying out loud, Peter preached a sermon and 3,000 people were saved. That's pretty bold. Look at the verse again. Look at the verse again. They didn't pray for boldness. They prayed for great boldness. It was as if they realized the enormity of what was at stake and that it was not just their lives, but it was the gospel that was at stake. And they prayed not just for boldness. They had already exhibited some of that. They prayed for great boldness. Everybody look up here at your pastor. I want to ask you a question. Serious question. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you prayed for great boldness to share the Word of God? Have you ever done that? Have you ever prayed for boldness to speak His Word? Now, now listen to me. I'm not talking about doing weird stuff. I'm not saying, God, make me bold, and I'm going to go out and act like a jerk. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about weird stuff. I'm, I'm talking about clearly and lovingly presenting the gospel message to those who need it. Do you know why the gospel made it out of the first century? It's because the first Christians prayed bold prayers. I wonder, I seriously wonder that if the first Christians prayed the kind of prayers that I pray, I seriously wonder if the gospel or the story of Jesus would have made it out of the first century. If the first Christians had prayed us prayers, I wonder if the gospel would have made it, the story of Jesus would have made it out of the first century. But they didn't pray us prayers, they prayed for boldness, and not just boldness, but for great boldness. 
And let's see how God responded. Chapter 4, verse 30. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. In other words, God, we're going to ask you to do something that only you can take credit for. We're going to ask you to do something around us and through us that would be evident that it's you at work. And then, verse 31, after they prayed, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and watch this, and spoke the word of God boldly. Hey church, let's push the reset button and start praying the kind of prayers that the first church prayed. Can we do that? Can we we just push the reset button and just start praying the kind of prayers the first Christians prayed? You can keep praying all the things that you normally pray for. Keep praying the, uh, about your needs and the us prayers and your family and your pastor. And, uh, keep praying for all of those things. But then maybe at the end, could you add a prayer? After you pray for all the things you normally pray for, maybe at the end, could you pray, and Lord, enable me to speak your word with great boldness. I wonder what would happen if you added that to your prayers. I wonder what it, how it would change if you prayed that every day. I wonder what would happen if, if every day you, you just made that part of your prayer. God, will you give me great boldness so I can talk to my friends about you? God, will you give me great boldness so that I can talk to that lady at work who has written you off and wants nothing to do with, with religion? God, would you give me great boldness so that I can talk to my family member who doesn't know you? Can you imagine what might happen if we really started to pray like the first century believers? I mean, we still pray for all the stuff we normally pray for, but, but then we add. And would you enable me to speak your word with great boldness? <clears throat> I think God's willing and waiting to answer that kind of prayer. And so I want to ask you to pray that every day. Just this week, every day. And so I want you to say it with me together. I want you to say it. I'm going to say it one time, then you repeat it after me. God, enable us to speak your word with great boldness. Can you pray that? Can you say that together with me? God, enable us to speak your word with great boldness. Let's say it again. God, enable us to speak your word with great boldness. Or if you're praying it, you would say, God, enable me to speak your word with great boldness. Now, before you write that off as impractical, listen to me. Are you sorry that somebody had the courage to tell you about Jesus? Are you sorry that somebody invited you to church? Are you sorry that somebody cared enough about you and handed you a Bible? Are you sorry that someone continued to pray for you even when you rejected them? No. Aren't you glad they had the courage to care? Aren't you glad they had the courage to ask Could we stop making church a place that we attend and start making it a movement we're a part of? God, I got all this stuff I need to pray about. I want to pray about. And God, I need this and I help. And God, and God, and God. Oh, oh, but God, before I end my prayer, would you enable me to speak your word with great boldness? Because God, I don't have what it takes. I'm scared. 
So I need you to enable me to do what I can't do. God, would you enable me to speak your word with great boldness? See, the first church took the gospel to the world because they refused to listen to the people who told them to shut up. Instead, they asked Almighty God to enable them to speak the word with great boldness. May He do the same in us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that indeed you will help us to rethink how we think about church and even how we think about prayer. God, when we're so tempted just to make prayer all about us, I pray you'd remind us to also add, God, enable us to speak your word with great boldness. Lord, I pray you do that in our hearts. And as we pray this prayer every week or every day this week, I pray in Jesus' name that we will begin to experience a courage that we normally do not have. I pray that we would have opportunities that we normally would miss. I pray that we would speak gladly the good news of Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.